All right, welcome to the Grow Podcast. Uh, it's ten eighteen here. Uh, we're in the in the throes of harvest. Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna always do as we always do in the Grow Podcast. We're gonna have a segment here to kind of start off that I'm gonna give you a market update on what's happening in the market today, from inputs, um, what we're seeing, and then even today I'm gonna talk a little bit about all of our building projects that we've had going on and that we're still in construction with. Um, and then we're going to transition to having our agronomic team with Dan and Brad on to really talk about what they're seeing now um, as we're getting the yield results out there. Um, we're seeing some of the struggles that we had over the summer um, really start to show up in those results. Um, and I'm going to get out of their way and let them really have their way with it um, uh, instead of kind of moderating it and let them be really raw on what they're telling you guys um, with what they're seeing. Um, you know, so when we look at the market update and, and what's happening in the markets today from the overall just agronomy picture, I think there's two or three key things that it really stick out to me is one, for those out there that haven't marketed any DS24 corn, um, when you're looking at that, and I would say the overall pretty above average yields or at least above expectation yields we're seeing on corn, um, I think this morning it was trading for five dollars and eighteen cents. Uh, on the board. Those are some things I would be looking at taking a stab at um, with laying off five to 10% of that new crop risk on, on the inputs that you're buying today and putting to the ground. Um, with everything we're seeing in the market, those are some good targets to have today and look at working some offers even at some higher prices um, for another five to 10% that you could sell. So that's the first plug I'm going to make on when I'm thinking about what I'm doing for my strategy right now on my overall um, hedging my crop inputs. That's one I would be looking at. You know, looking at the rest of the fertilizer market, the biggest thing I would say today is, you know, we've, we're obviously, it's very unfortunate what we're seeing happen in the Middle East um, in Israel with a lot of the tensions that's happening. That is going to be a big factor to continue to watch over the next few months. Um, there's a lot of players uh, in that market from the standpoint of who is supporting who, um, who's backing who, and as that whole... Um, conflict escalates if there's added people or there's added conflict throughout the middle middle east you know and we continue to see the reaction to gas prices um primarily oil or natural gas you know those things are going to affect what's happening in a, in the overall market from total fertilizer nitrogen prices you know also one thing to think about too is you know the there's a vast majority of urea produced in the arab gulf in that whole region in the Middle East. Um, so any time we have a conflict over there, especially in what we're seeing right now, it's gonna have some kind of a, a negative effect in regards to supply or overall international tensions. So, um, you know, again, very unfortunate what's happening over there. It's something to definitely keep an eye on from the standpoint of, you know, what's happening, who is escalating tensions, you know, is there a drawdown in tensions, um, just overall, Anything that continues to happen is going to be somewhat of a, of a of a situation that is going to influence nitrogen prices as we go forward. So um, that's the biggest thing I would say is as a watch out. You know, last week when we saw the tensions begin to rise, we did see you know a five a five dollar to eight dollar increase in in Dutch. Uh, or European gas prices overnight. Again, there's a lot of risk premium that's being put in with, you know, now we have a war 
in Ukraine and a conflict in the Middle East again. So when you look at the total supply of energy coming from both the Middle East and Russia, you know, now you have a conflict in both scenarios, uh, you know, with the ongoing war in Ukraine. You know, those are things that are going to continue to influence what we're seeing in overall nitrogen prices globally. Um, and it will have a net effect on us here domestically. So, you know, when we think about where corn price is today and where it has been traditionally, um, you know, I don't know what anybody's opinion is today on what I would call our new crop that we're taking off. But, you know, obviously with yields a little bit better, it'll be interesting to see how that transition is throughout. You know, we have a slight carry in the market today, but does that hold? Are we able to um, maintain prices over $5 on the carry? Um, if we don't, you know, a lot of growers are going to be looking for price reprieve in nitrogen prices. Um, and today with where we're at globally with the conflicts that are happening and supply, I think it's going to be tough. I think we have a really firm floor put in the prices. Um, you look back to last spring where we started, um, or call it last prepay season where we started prices at, I mean, we're still nowhere near that. The downside potential was significant. Um, now where we're at, I'm not saying that there's a bunch of upside, but there's probably more upside than there is downside from where we're at today. Um, I think with a lot of what's going on, um, just globally, there's not enough supply out there to really affect in a negative way. Um, and I'd say the next biggest thing with that from an overall supply standpoint is really looking at China. Um, the last month or two, we've had a couple rounds of Indian urea tenders. And both of those tenders have, I, I'm going to say, kind of not really, they flamed out and haven't been a big deal in the market. Um, not a lot of supply has been bought, but it's been enough to balance the market. The Chinese governments came out um, since, I would say, the first one and really said, hey, we're not going to be a supplier globally of urea. We're getting into this time period where we're going to need to conserve energy. Um, we're going to be mandating certain export duties on, on urea leaving the country. And, you know, again, that was a, a pretty big lift to the urea market, um, looking at the amount of demand that still needs to come from India and knowing that China wasn't going to be able to supply it. Like anything that comes from the Chinese government, it's hard to believe. And since then, we've really transitioned into a time where um, the market's not sure on how much su supply uh, is really going to come from China. And it continues to lean a little bit closer to that we're going to have more supply than what everybody thought. So um, there's a there's a tender that will close at the end of the week here um, for Urea India India. And we'll see really what happens and how much supply comes from China. I would say if it's an if it's an over exaggerated amount of urea that does come from China, that's pretty bearish in the overall global urea market. Um, but you know, I don't think it's a point where it's really going to catapult it higher either. Um, I think the biggest thing again to keep a watch out on is really what happens in the Middle East, and then really what is China's influence in the overall global urea market. Um, you know, if, if tensions settle down in the Middle East and, you, and China continues to export urea um, and supply the market, I think we have a very balanced market um, to the point that we're not going to see a lot of big shifts in prices. Um, if we have an escalated conflict and we have limited exports from China into the urea market, we could see some pretty fast and aggressive changing prices. So um, I know that's not that's about as clear as mud. You know, if I'm a grower trying to take some advice on that, but I think the biggest thing to be mindful of is it's a very fluid situation. Make sure you're tuning in and listening to the updates. Uh, call on the Grow Solutions Center to ask for information. Call on your local account lead to ask for information um, on what the markets are doing, especially if you haven't um, locked in all of your needs. Um, you know, when you look to 
the dry market, you know, the biggest thing that still remains a struggle today for the U.S. market is is phosphate supply. Um, I can tell you today on ten on October eighteenth, I'm feeling phosphate supply more than probably I have in a few years. Um, there's been some downtime at some of the domestic plants. We've had very limited overall map imports domestically. The river system is not working worth the crap. Um, you know, we just haven't had a lot of things that have worked our way in the standpoint of being able to have really adequate or consistent phosphate supply domestically. Um, a lot of this still has to do with the fact that Moroccan uh, imports of phosphate are not allowed here in the United States or heavily dutied. Um, again, that is back at the uh, Department of Commerce and International Trade Committee to figure out where that goes long term. Um, you know, so we'll see what happens there. You know, my stance on it is, is when you look at the overall global market for phosphate supply long term, Morocco has all more or less the majority of the supply globally for the next 500 years. Um, you look at production that we are producing annually as a domestic market. Every year we produce less as a U.S. domestic market, and we still continue to export products. So at some point, we're going to have to take and look at this a little bit differently and understand that, you know, we have to be able to open up ourselves for a little bit more phosphate import to really supply the U.S. farmer. Um, you know, you look at price differentials between Brazil and the U.S. today. Um, the Brazilian farmer is paying anywhere from 50 to, to $150 less um, on phosphate prices per ton. Um, and you look at what we're having from a standpoint of a currency exchange um, versus them on export bean prices. You know, the, what's happening in the phosphate market today is just making the Brazilian mark, uh, farmer more competitive than the U.S. farmer. And we have to get some change into that to where it's a little bit more even playing field. Uh, the Chinese consumer, the global consumer of beans doesn't care if it's Brazilian or it's, or it's uh, U.S. Um, they want beans. They're looking for something, uh, you know, they're looking for a commodity. Now, they will pay us a premium from the standpoint of logistic success, ability to get it from us and whatnot, but that's only to a certain degree. So, you know, in the phosphate market in general, we've got a lot of soul searching to do as a, a total market of, of being able to bring back consistent supply to the market. And obviously, you know, with those things being back into their relative government, uh, channels. Uh, it's, we'll see what happens. Um, I do think there's going to be some reprieve to the overall Moroccan duties, um, just due to what we're seeing in price differentials globally. Looking at, um, potash, I can tell you right now, potash is very flat, um, production, I would say supply and consumption are very balanced. And, you know, I think we can continue to see that throughout the fall and spring, um, that there's not going to be any wild price swings in those products. Um, everything is kind of working as is um, with what we're seeing from consumption and production. Moving on to the chemicals. Uh, the biggest thing I can tell everybody to, to be on the watch out from Landis, um, whether you're a new customer or an existing customer, uh, the first week of November, we will have our crop protection prices launched. Um, you'll, be able to, you'll be able to start working on your programs with either your local account lead or your growth solution specialist um, You know, on that. The biggest highlights I would say from looking at prices today, there's been huge price reduction in the following products. Anything that has metallochlor, 2,4-D, but not including Enlist, glyphosate, uh, glufosinate, including Liberty, clethodum, uh, and generic fungicides, uh, and generic insecticides. Those, those kind of branches, or I'm gonna call it buckets of products, have seen significant decreases year over year in prices. Um, 
again, there's been a ton of uh, channel supply that we've seen, both from manufacturers, distributors, and even retailers, where people just weren't, you know, when we go back to the COVID era of supply situation and really trying to make sure we had consistent supply, people loaded up, had long inventory, planned on the carry, planned on, uh, you know, possession was nine-tenths of the law. Like any good market, when things get too high, people step in, find a way to manufacture products and create margin. And we've had a huge reduction in prices due to that um, with overall tech supply, finished goods supply. And, and it's really been a complete wipeout of the market. So um, we're resetting back to, to where a lot of these prices were when we had $3 corn um, and, and probably very consistent pricing here for the next 12 months. On those products where I don't see there's any you know, unless we have major production issues or something crazy that were to happen in the market from a raw ingredient standpoint or a finished good product standpoint, um, those prices are going to remain pretty consistent until we really have channel consumption um, happen and, and really clear a lot of this inventory to get to the point where retailers don't have much inventory, growers don't have much inventory, distributors don't have much inventory. Um, and a lot of that's going to come on the back of production controls. Uh, one thing, I, again, I would say from a pricing standpoint on branded prices, um, there's really not a difference in branded prices year over year other than I would say glyphosate and glufosinate prices. You know, we've seen those prices from branded manufacturers really kind of step back. Um, we saw Bayer have some pretty significant um, glyphosate price decreases. Um, they've recently taken a small price increase. Um, we've seen BASF come forward with a pretty significant price decrease on Liberty. Um, so all these things included, you know, we've seen a lot of price decreases on, I would call it your mainstay commodity products. But in general, I'd say branded products are pretty flat to a slight increase. Um, and, you know, they're still talking of December type price increases as well. I don't think that will really materialize from a, you know, a broad spectrum of the market. But, you know, I think everything's going to be pretty flat from where we've increased today. You know, the last thing I would say, too, is on the chemical side is there are great opportunities to save money while still having a very premium uh, program from the chemical standpoint. I think the biggest thing as a grower this year is you have to really work with your trusted advisor to figure out what that mix is and how you attack the, your, you know, your overall herbicide programs from that. So be talking with your trusted advisor on who is providing you a lot of these recommendations on your overall herbicide programs. And give us a call, and, and we can find a way to get you to the to a really cost-effective price per acre, as well as being able to add uh, premium nutritionals, uh, premium products along with it that are getting you to a price per acre that is very affordable uh, compared to what we've seen for the last few years. And finally, I wanted to update everybody a little bit on the projects that we've had going on here at Landis. Again, I know um, for all those that you know are customers of us or that follow us, you know, we're constantly posting about the new, uh, the money that we've invested back into rural Iowa and rural America here. You know, from an agronomy standpoint, the biggest things that I, I, I want to point out is we've, uh, obviously, we've talked about anybody driving on 80 to Des Moines from Illinois can see our Mitchellville facility. Um, it's pretty well finished and recapped and, and wrapped up. Um, so we've had that for about a year now. Um, we just put the final uh, uh, stitches on our, our Rake Liquid Building, which is going to be a state-of-the-art liquid building for the local business at Rake. Um, and for those customers up there that, uh, you know, are going to be looking at using that this spring, we're going to have an open house this winter to bring you in and show you the technology that we put in that facility. Um, and for any of those that, uh, you know, follow us on our YouTube, we're also going to have a YouTube video here in the next 
few months on just kind of going through that building and what it looks like and what we're trying to really document and demonstrate here at Landis as um, a premier provider locally of, of crop protection products and liquid fertilizer products. So be looking for that. Uh, we're putting kind of the final bows on our Jefferson seed treatment site. Uh, and that'll be another one. If anybody remembers back to the podcast, I think we did it in, in May um, where we were in the Jefferson uh, uh, warehouse uh, while they were working on getting all the equipment out of there. Uh, we'll be able to kind of show you the before and after pictures of what that looks like uh, from the standpoint of what we took out of there to get that, that project to where it is today. And we're very excited to be able to really service not only central Iowa around Jefferson, but really more of Iowa um, with treated soybeans, premium treated soybeans um, offered from us and really logistically uh, centered out of that facility. Uh, and really probably the, the most ex, uh, exciting one for us is our current Boone facility being uh, built today. Uh, again, those that follow us and, you know, that, that saw that our grant that was awarded from the USDA on that project, um, that's going to be our manufacturing and distribution site really for the whole Midwest region um, and especially in central Iowa. Um, and what we're going to do there is we're going to be manufacturing a lot of our own proprietary products and really focusing on you know what works for us uh, for our growers that we deal with as well as making specialized blends for whatever they may need on their farm um, it's a 75,000 square foot warehouse and it's going to be fully automated 24 7 and uh, we've posted some stuff out uh, out on our uh, twitter on on some of the updates so continue to look for that and i i would expect uh, this winter or this spring we're going to be in there for one of the podcasts as well really going through that and, and showing everybody what our capabilities are there. And uh, it, it's, it's truly gonna be a one-of-the-kind facility here in the Midwest. And then after that, we're building another very similar plant to uh, what we built at Rake in early Iowa. Uh, again, state-of-the-art uh, automation, uh, very fast, very efficient for those local growers. And then we're also doing some small tweaks at a few of our facilities where we're just increasing the capacity. Um, our Bayard facility that's needed a little TLC on the uh, loadout capabilities, we're upgrading the, the automation there and, and implementing some, um, some equipment that will help us load out uh, quite a bit faster. Uh, for those of you around there that don't enjoy the, the long lines in season, uh, we're, we're definitely fixing that problem. And then upgrading our dike facility to have two uh, fully uh, automated hot load bays. So um, with that, obviously, again, we're, we're really beginning to continue to invest in our overall agronomy business here at Landis. And uh, it's not possible without, you know, the pull through from our um, customers. And we do appreciate that. And as always, always appreciate your business. So. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Dan and Brad um, to really give you guys a really good look at what they've been seeing in the field. Um, we've had a very exciting year from the overall agronomic team on you know what we're finding out there that's really going to make a difference in, in our overall uh, strategy for how we place products this, this winter. So um, they've got a bunch of good information, and uh, I know you'll look forward to hearing from them. As always, thank you for your business and support of Landis. Thanks, John. Dan? Brad, it's been a interesting year it has been an interesting year <laughs> let's talk about what we've seen with uh, genetics let's talk about corn first um you've been flying uh the drones you've been looking at um a lot of different plots uh and i've been out uh counting uh doing uh, stand counts and counting how many plants are going over when uh, do the push test and what i've seen with genetics so far if i was just going to do one big macro uh, view of it is that um, this year, plant health really paid the, the dividends. 
It did. It did. One of the real interesting things we did this year with the camera that we have on one of our drones, which captures infrared and near-infrared imagery, is looking at those hybrids in the plots, especially under the dry stress conditions that we had. And it was amazing to look across 15 and 20 and 25 varieties in a plot and see how those hybrids reacted in those really dry stress type environments. We don't have the ability to do it yet, but later on um, uh, when we uh, do some meetings, we'll look at uh, some of the corresponding yields that we took out and some of those images because I've been looking at some of those uh, in the plots and where we had some of the higher yields, you could see uh, there was difference uh, in the consistency uh, and the, the way those drone shots looked. Um, from a yield standpoint, it's been all over the board. We have some plots and some field comparisons where we had more rain, like in the Boone County uh, area, where we've had yields up in the 260s and 270s. Um, what I found is, uh, overall, this has been a very good year for Bravant hybrids again. And um, um, obviously, there are a lot of different uh, choices uh, that that uh, people have uh, to make, but um, we've seen some tremendous performance from the early maturities all the way to the fuller season uh, maturities. And what I'm noticing, when I was out uh, doing uh, evaluations in plots, the plant health is impeccable uh, with the Bravant uh, program. Yeah. Well, and one thing dry conditions teaches you is you really start to learn where you have opportunities for improvement. For example, we were talking about the plant health and we talk about plant stress, especially under dry conditions. Think about potassium, where we had fields and growers that have really put more emphasis into getting fertility levels up and more importantly balanced. We really saw that pay big dividends this year, especially when it comes to the plant health. We think about the role that the nutrients play in that plant's development, potassium being one of those really critical nutrients and water absorption and plant stress and just the functionality that potassium plays in that plant life cycle. And then when you come in with the products that have, uh, for lack of a better term, a bigger sponge underneath them, so they're able to more efficiently absorb water and nutrients. Uh, under the dry drought type, drought stress type conditions that we had this year, we really started to see those shine and really start to separate themselves across a lot of different environments. Um, my, my three words um, uh, going forward when we're looking at corn selection for 2024, guys, is diversity, diversity, diversity. And uh, if, you're, if you're planting just one style, uh, you need to make sure uh, that you're diversified. Obviously, we've been talking about Bravant because after 45 years uh, uh, in the business, I just don't like tripping over corn when I'm walking in, uh, in fields. And I like corn. Um, Brad, we've talked about the fact that, uh, and we're going to talk about fertility in a minute here, but um, uh, when you look at yields, there are a lot of good yielding products, and uh, multiple companies have good yielding products. So I want to take those good yielding products, and I want them to stand. And um, plant health is, is one aspect to it, obviously using fungicides as another uh, aspect to it. Um, but we're finding good yields um, in the areas, uh, like we said, in that 260, 270, where, where in other areas where it was a little bit more stressed, and you're still seeing those good plant health products that are yielding near the top. Yeah. 
definitely makes a big difference. Now, um, when it comes to soybeans, um, uh, we've had enough uh, commentary on the um, uh, virtual agronomist. Um, this year, it's all been about peaking source of resistance for soybean cyst nematode. There were a lot of stresses out here with soybeans. But number one stress um, I saw in, in evaluating fields, nine out of 10 fields that we would take um, and dig up roots on soybeans and look for cysts, we were able to find them, which um, is extremely uh, high percentage. We saw yellow fields uh, where some areas where the pH uh, was high. There, there was obviously some, maybe some corn carryover uh, in some situations. What did you see as, um, as you were looking at some of the soybean fields? Well, again, taking the drone with the spectral camera on it over some of the soybean plots, it was amazing looking at the differentiation of those varieties from the stress conditions. And even in Boone County at our Farnaville Research Farm, where we have 28 different varieties in one plot, you could, to the row, pick out those varieties that were taking the drier stress type conditions better. Is it surprising that the ones that were showing the best plant health happened to have Peking type resistance in them? I really don't think so. If we think about the soybean cyst nematode, how it functions in that plant, you know, think of high cholesterol, you restrict the blood vessel, you can't get as much blood flow through, and you usually end up getting put on high blood pressure medication by your doctor. Soybean cyst nematode essentially acts the same in a soybean plant. That cyst gets in there, and that microscopic worm gets into that root, and it essentially restricts that root's ability to move nutrients and water up and down through that plant and to feed that plant. So when you get those dry conditions and then nutrient availability becomes a bit more of a challenge to get the nutrients and the water into the plant, it just becomes a compounding effect. So I think there's truly something going on there that we really need to address. The PI-88788 has been around for many, many decades. And if we've learned anything over the years, Mother Nature always seems to adapt. This may be that point in time where the PI-88788 resistance has kind of run its course. Mother Nature has adapted to all the different races that are out there to the point where it's just not giving us the level of protection that we really need. Well, we're seeing um, a lot of data coming in from uh, the Landis plots. Um, also, in talking to um, one of our colleagues, Dave Lemke, in the Farnville Gallery uh, area, um, uh, Dave was telling me that um, of course, this is a sampling, um, but there were several thousand acres that have come out uh, now in his area, and as he's uh, keeping track, um, his evaluation is there's probably about a five to seven bushel advantage uh, in the in the farmers who were planting Peking versus the P88. So, guys, if if you weren't happy with your soybean yields, uh, you got to take a look um, at the new Peking uh, varieties, and um, we are going to have series of meetings. Um, after harvest is over, um, uh, after um, uh, when there's a little bit more time, and we'll be talking about the whys. It wasn't just this. There were several stresses with beans. We had gall midge flying around and causing some challenges that we haven't seen before. We still had a sudden death syndrome showing up. We had some of these others. I think what we need to, to do is we need to set a goal to make soybeans interesting uh, for most of us. Is we need to go 
and start looking at field averages like the Illinois boys do. Let's start going for 80 bushels instead of being satisfied with 50 to 60 or, or farming for 50 to 60. Um, I think that's when uh, we're going to start seeing people just a little bit more interested in soybeans. So you want to make soybeans great again? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, one of, you know, transitioning from that, one of the ways that we have to do that with soybeans is if you don't measure it, you're not going to. So um, talking about soil testing, Brad, you're kind of the expert when it comes to soil testing. What are your thoughts for going into the 2024 season? Well, it's really interesting. This year, and again, it kind of goes back to being in those dry uh stress-type environment, you learn things. And one thing we really learned this year is how important it is to have sulfur out there. Repeatedly, we've had issues around fields that weren't either putting on proper ears or we weren't seeing the pollination that we should see or we were seeing other issues. And a lot of it goes back to a lack of sulfur. Sulfur is one of those nutrients that, even though it's not considered a macronutrient, it really should be in today's environment. You think back over the decades, we used to get a lot of that sulfur through our rainfall. Well, we cleaned up the air, that source of sulfur is gone. And it just doesn't seem like we pay a lot of attention to it. The other issue there is that sulfur is leachable in the sulfate form. And so while we may have salt sampled in the fall and I look good, you don't know what the weather's gonna do between now and May when the crop's gonna start to use it again, if you have a really wet spring or you have an excessive snowfall event through the winter months, the snow melt is going to have to go somewhere. It moves that sulfur out of that root zone. So at the end of the day, the crop next year is gonna start to show some sulfur deficiency type symptomologies, right? Well, I've got an example for you. Um, I got a call uh, to go down and look at a field. Um, uh, he was taken out uh, for silage. It was over by Rockwell City. And, um, I mean, the ears were three, four-inch size. And um, basically when we started talking, we talked about um, the symptomology of the way the plants looked all season. And I said, do you have a recent soil test uh, on sulfur? The most recent that he had on soil test was 2020. And uh, the sulfur levels were far below. They were in the two parts per million range. And I said, okay, have you done an, have you done any um, any sulfur applications in the last four years? And the answer was no. So we, we went from there. So here it leads into four years ago for a soil sample, and 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 the levels were so low. So. What should we be doing with sampling in the first place? Do we do, 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 we do it every four years or what? That's a good question. A question that I've had a number of times this year. And I think if you go back and look historically, that's been our standard operating procedure. We take our soil samples in the fall so we can just decide how many pounds of nutrients, how many pounds of phosphorus, potassium, we need to apply this fall for next year's crop based on our Yule goal. A couple things to think about. First of all, if you've been in that area that's been really dry, especially in our part of the world, and you take soil samples in the fall under those dry conditions, chances are your potassium level is going to read low, lower than it probably really is. Well, the issue there becomes if you then take that number and based on your yield goal, make a recommendation and put together an application plan, you go out and apply it, you may over apply 
a nutrient, potassium in this case, which, although it sounds hard to believe, can happen, but you start to get things out of balance, right? So we think of the phosphorus potassium ratio. You know, we want to be about four to one right there. And that's one of the issues I have with soil sampling in the fall, especially under dry conditions, right? The other part, when you think about sulfur, we talked about it just a few minutes ago. I take my sample in the fall, my number looks good, but I don't know what the weather's gonna do for the next six months. If I get a lot of moisture in that field, whether it's spring rains or snow melt, that number may not be accurate come next spring. So I'm putting my 2024 crop in thinking I'm good. Well, reality is I may not be. And today there are so many options out there. We've got technology, there are a lot of really good apps out there. You can take your yield data from the combine, you can take your APH and add you know, 15 or 20% to that number, that's a good number to work with, that will give you a better idea of you know, how many pounds of P, K, sulfur, manganese, copper, boron, zinc, do I need to apply for next year's crop? The benefit I see there is by using the technology and whether it's your yield data or your APH plus a certain percentage you feel comfortable with for a yield goal, you can not only get your macronutrients and secondary nutrients, but you'd also get an idea of how many pounds of each nutrient the stover and the grain is gonna take out. Right. So you can go ahead and make an application plan and get it done this fall in a more timely fashion because you don't have to wait for the soil test results to come back. The other benefit to doing that in the fall, using the tools and the apps, the technology and actual yield data is I can build that plan out based on what the grain and stover removal is, but then go into that field and do my soil sampling in the spring. I take a lot of that weather variability right. out, of, out of the equation, and then I can fine tune it. I know I'm gonna be making applications across that field, whether it's a first pass herbicide program, a second pass herbicide program, a fungicide application type program where you can fine tune it and not have the concern or worry about is my number correct because Mother Nature gave me too much or too little rainfall. Uh, we've got some great products out there. When I think about a lot of the soil tests that I see come across my desk, about 40% of our acres are actually soil sampled. And out of that 40%, probably only 20% are actually getting complete soil test analyses. So even though we took a sample this fall, we just got the basic soil test analysis and we don't have any idea where we're at for boron, copper, sulfur, zinc, manganese. So we've got products in the, on the shelf. When I take that app and I take that yield data, I plug it in, I know how many pounds I need to hit my yield goal for not only my primary, but my secondary, my micronutrients. Every pound of fertilizer going out, you could easily meet most, if not all, of your boron and your copper and your manganese and zinc levels with a product we have called Procope. We have some other products in the, on the shelf that have both a mix of sulfate form sulfur and elemental sulfur. And so when I look at soil testing in the fall and I look at some of these numbers we're seeing, especially under the dry conditions, you're, you're probably gonna see some inflated magnesium levels. Your base saturation magnesium gets over 20%. That's usually an indication there's a drainage issue. That didn't just happen, that happened over time. Well, one of the advantages of putting out sulfur, especially the sulfate form of sulfur in the fall, is that sulfur will combine with magnesium to form magnesium sulfate, which we know as Epsom salts. 
And once you get a product into a salt form like that, then it can be moved out of that profile. It can be moved through the profile with moisture. And I think those are just a few things to kind of think and keep in mind. Uh, you know, S10 is a great product we have that, that can help mitigate some of those high magnesium levels if you want to try and get that water infiltration rate improved. Um, soil sniping in the fall has always been kind of the way we've done it, but I think there are tools and technologies out there that we can adapt to help us get better at moving that bar to the next level. How do you manage it if you take soil samples in the fall and you have no micronutrient readings on that soil test? You don't know where you're at. You don't know what to apply at that point. So well, as, those are some recommendations. As, 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 um, as we wrap this up, um, I want to go back uh, to soybeans and um, uh, the fact that I, I recall that probably five to seven years ago, uh, the Illinois Soybean Association wanted to help individuals get to that 80 to 100 bush level. And the first thing they did was they went pretty aggressively with uh, soil sampling um, um, every two years instead of every four years. And then the second thing they did is they fertilized um, soybeans as a crop uh, uh, to make it uh, interesting. And so I think we'll go into uh, maybe even a little bit deeper dive when we do our uh, winter meetings because we're going to talk about fertility with soybeans first. We're going to talk about how do you fertilize to get to 80 bushels. Then we're going to talk about the genetics and we'll highlight peaking. You're going to hear peaking a lot. And um, and then we'll talk about stress management um, coming out of um, um, of our uh, new facility in Boone. We're going to have acre edge products that uh, will benefit uh, soybeans as well. And so um, if to I really think to help individuals really get excited about beans. We got to get to 80 bushels and then it's going to be exciting for everybody because Brad, we both know individuals that plant beans because they just have to from a rotational standpoint, but really they love corn. And I think the difference has been, you look at where corn yields are today versus where soybean yields are. Soybeans just haven't kept up. You know, individuals that are getting 55, 60 bushels, and they've been getting 55 or 60 bushels for the last 10 to 15 years, that just doesn't do it. 80 to 85 will we'll, we'll do it. So, um, Well, and don't forget, in one of our soybean trials that we ran at Farnaville, we had 82 and 82.3 bushel and an acre beans in certain treatments. So we're there. We're, we're seeing some real promise with some products that we're looking at that I really think are going to get us to that next And that was a field that Mr. Lemke on purpose wanted to shoot uh, for those types of yields. And so you look at that field, it was about a 30-acre field that went 80 bushels. The area probably averaged um, 59. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great point. Um, I think um, we'll wrap it up uh, here on the ag agronomy segment. Um, uh, really appreciate everyone who takes the time to listen because our whole purpose here is to help you get better yields and to um, give you the observations that we're seeing in the growing season. But now it's when the data comes in. And Brad, you do a great job on data analysis. And so it's going to be fun to present the information as, uh, as we get it uh, and uh, to do a follow-up with uh, winter meetings. So thanks, guys, uh, for paying attention to this section. You bet. Thank you.